Hey there. My name's Tim. Welcome to The Table, the podcast edition. The Table is a community that exists to make room to explore what we believe. What you're about to hear is an edited version of something that we call the talkie bit. We're sharing it with the hope that it can be a positive catalyst and encouragement to you in your own explorations. In our experience, exploring what we believe can sometimes be hard work, and we don't think anybody should have to do that alone. We're able to offer this because of the generous support of donors both within and beyond a local community. If you want to contribute to keeping it going, you can find information about how to do that at thetablewinnipeg.com. Thanks for dropping by. Welcome to the talk event. My story around daydreaming is connected to work. I have a pretty sturdy work ethic. Uh, that could sound self-congratulatory, but it's, it's really not so much to my credit as a, as, you know, as character as it is a learned behavior for me. Um, mostly a learned behavior. I mean, I like to work. I like to focus on something. It helps me feel like my life is purposeful, like I'm making a difference. Um, those are high values for me, so that feels good. Um, but connecting to that, that to hands-on work, like that, that feeling of purposefulness and all of that, that was something that I had to learn because when I was a kid, I, I really liked to, to dream. That, that was my favorite space. And, um, and in particular, daydreaming. We had this big, this chair still exists in somebody's home. We had this big, comfy, uh, it was an armchair, but it was a rocker as well in the living room. In fact, there was a pair of them. And we had a full-length couch, you know, like you could stretch right out on that couch. And both of those facilitated daydreaming, you know, rather well. But when I was quite young, sitting on that chair, lying on that couch, were perfectly acceptable activities or lack of activity. But when I got older, sitting and dreaming started to get relabeled. It was lazy. It was useless. There was work to be done. Uh, isn't there always work to be done? I can't speak for your experience, but having heard some of those stories, I would just sort of set them up against the reality in my world, which is that there was always work to be done. And in what can be a disheartening revelation or experience, maybe this part of growing up, it's never done done. You know, discrete tasks maybe, but not the thing that we often label work. And uh, to be fair, it wasn't just a message I heard at home. Uh, many of my teachers, as lots of you have talked about, trained as they were by those surrounding cultural values, assumed that a daydreaming student was somebody that was not paying attention, and uh, rather than someone that was paying attention to something or someone other than them. I mean, some of you in this room are teachers. I, I do public facilitated forward-facing things. I know what it's like to look out in a room that you wish was being attentive and have the experience of watching somebody's eyelids drooping, uh, or they're just like, you know, slack-jawed off into the corner, and feel like maybe I'm not doing my job, or, you know, something that's supposed to be happening here is not happening. To be able to see that a student, for example, is physically in their chair, but mentally somewhere else, you know, doesn't feel great, right? But that said, concluding that that student is not working doesn't actually logically follow, unless we believe that the primary task in learning is attentiveness in the classroom. It's a task in learning, isn't it? But how we think about that beyond that kind of gets interesting. So it's right around this intersection of coming to view the world as a place that is filled with work that is never done, where things like daydreaming start to actually go off the rails. Like that's kind of where this 
where this gets messy. It's not so much that it's incorrect to understand the world we occupy is requiring work. Just standing up and moving around takes effort, gravity being what it is. But the idea that work is never done is one that I suspect uh, most of us have unconsciously acquired in connection with a related concept or companion idea, which is the idea of productivity. Productivity (laughs) in our culture is generally speaking, understood quite mechanically. Pretty pretty factory kind of a picture. It's, it's about tallying the material or defined task completion, those kind of things. And we tend to value ourselves based on our productivity, but to value ourselves that way is to value ourselves the way we value a machine. It's to value, place value based on utility or capacity for output. It's one of the reasons... Uh, our world generates so much of what we call trash or garbage because when something loses its perceived utility, our knee-jerk reaction is to throw it out. It's no longer useful. And when we apply that way of assigning value to a person, maybe to ourselves, we're on the road to a rather serious problem. I don't want to overplay this hand, but I am having my own embodied experience of reduced utility because of what's happening with my vision. And I have to process this notion constantly quite a bit. That's a very minor version of that compared to what many, many people experience and what many of us may experience as we age or change or have altering experiences. But you got to consciously, because of those prevailing cultural values, at least I find, I have to consciously process that sense of, is my value as a person changing because my utility is changing? It's interesting on a good day. On a bad day, it's, uh, it can be quite a challenge. But if we've been valuing ourselves by how much labor we can bear and our capacity to bear labor is going down, our value starts to get called into question, right? Are we in danger? This is the emotional part of the experience. Are we in danger of being discarded? Maybe not in the violent or terminal sense of the word, uh, you know, but uh, you talk with a couple of older folks or people who live with not quite typical bodies or brains or abilities, and in short order, you will hear words from them about their lived experience that are like words like invisible or sidelined or discarded. And the stats on how quickly people begin to decline and die after retirement are startling. Or viewed through the lens that I've been referencing, probably not so startling. I read, a, I read an entire novel in like more or less a continuous experience over several days this past summer, which I haven't done for a long time. And uh, it was lovely. Uh, and the novel was outstanding. One of the characters in that novel uh, quotes their mother, who they're not her, who she's quoting, Aristotle or someone else. But what the mother said that they remembered and that I remember was hope is the pillar that holds up the world. So many of those experiences where people feel like they no longer have value end up being experiences of reduction or loss of hope. And whether hope is the pillar that holds up the world or not, we can talk about. But the experience of feeling a a loss of hope, which I think lots of people are experiencing these days. Um, There's a generational version of this that I think is very real as well. makes it harder to feel vital, to live, to feel like you want to carry on. I suspect most of us would agree that humans shouldn't be kept or discarded based on their utility. Uh, that's the stuff of nasty speculative fiction. And, you know, most of us can see that that would be taking it a bit too far, right? We're, we're going to reconstitute the useless ones to provide energy for the machine. But what might be harder to see is the connection between that problem and the importance or the value of 
daydreaming. And that's a connection I want to make. By the way, I heard, I heard a, a writer this morning, actually, in an interview, describe the experience of pontificating about something as a teacher of writing by saying, the reason it works as a teacher is because I make sure my students know that I'm talking about how this works for me and that they can take or leave whatever. And I, I, I so deeply resonated with that when they said it. I was like, I just need to remember to say that really often at the table. So I'm going to just dive into this from my perspective with my lens. But that's, that's where I'm always coming from. It's like, I'm going to tell you how this looked to me when I was thinking about it recently and what I wrote down this past week. And you, I want you to, I, I hope you will, want you to, it's also true, but I hope you will take the bit or bits that feel like they have something to do with you and just ignore the rest. If, we've been, if you've been following along in this series, this is where we come to the point where we might feel like we're taking a bite of something unfamiliar. And that is certainly the case for me. So uh, before we you know, all start to feel beat up for the ways we've been taught to see the world when it comes to daydreaming, left feeling like the sting of the critique without being offered an alternative, which is also no fun, let me read you something from, uh, from Tricia Hersey, uh, someone who sees these ideas from this, this very different vantage point. I've been mining this book and recommending it to people because it's just her perspective is so utterly not mine but is deeply considered and practiced and uh and altering she labels this a daydreaming moment i experienced while grieving as my eyes closed i began to imagine my braids rising to become propellers that would allow me to levitate and fly away to another planet this planet has never experienced racism, sexism, classism, or any type of hate. People sleep up to 18 hours a day like cats. During the sleep time, their dreams produce all the labor they need to survive and thrive. I know, right? That was parenthetical. (laughs) The food is grown via dreams. The planet, listen to where this goes for her. The planet is a sanctuary for black bodies that have been destroyed on Earth via violence and oppression. These people, those people, rather, are now on the council that serve as the spiritual advisors to the entire planet. Trayvon Martin is there. Rakia Boyd is there. Sandra Bland is there. George Floyd is there. Breonna Taylor is there. They are all together wearing white while smiling and resting. And she goes on to say this. This vision came to me in a 30-minute daydreaming session. She plans to daydream. And then she does. It soothed me and allowed a quiet space to grieve and rest. It allowed me to feel in my body and mind an alternative to what has been done. I call my daydreaming brain love. Isn't that just kind of remarkable and beautiful? And also interesting. So those names that that Hersey cites, right? Trayvon Martin, Rakia Boyd, like George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. We know those names. We know those names from the news. We know those names because they've been high-profile stories. They've been catalytic stories. We might recognize them as people who have not been treated justly, who have been wronged. We might use the language of systemic injustice when we're musing about or speaking about or thinking about those stories. And perhaps we wonder what might be done, how, how the world could be altered so that those kind of atrocities would be, if not eliminated, at least reduced. Here's a thing to consider. Listen, listen to this sentence from what I just read. This one might have slipped by unnoticed. I tried not to overemphasize it because I wanted to come back to it. Hersey's speaking here about the daydream she just described, and she says this. She writes this. It allowed me to feel in my body and mind an alternative to what had been done. It allowed me to feel in my body and mind an alternative 
to what had been done. An alternative to what had been done is a truly significant step in the journey to making the world a different and better place. Our bodies, our minds, our imaginations, these are the things that we actually have to work with when it comes to making a difference in the world. This is what is ours. Those are the things that are ours and nobody else's. These are the avenues by which we do, we, we exercise our agency. They're the practical means by which we enact or participate in change. This is how it happens. So to make space to dream about a world that's different than the one we're in, says Hersey, isn't, it's not a luxury. It's a necessity. It's not wouldn't it be nice if. It's it won't change unless. <laughs> she puts it this way. All of culture is in collaboration for us not to rest. There is no system in our culture that supports and makes space for us to rest. This culture does not want you rested unless it is attached to your increased labor and productivity. No one will give you rest. This is an outlier investigation, a counter-narrative. It is trust work. It is healing work. It is decolonizing work. It is a subculture holding space for the blossoming of resistance. Pretty powerful language for daydreaming, isn't it? I think as with so many ideas that you know, resonate over the centuries, that survive as wisdom, as a better path, a third way, as uh, an indigenous phrase that I heard this past week that I was just like, yeah, there we go. Uh, two-eyed seeing, you know, seeing with depth and clarity. This is the sort of truth that might strike us as spiritual, this, this thought that daydreaming is a signal that all is either well or at least on the path to improvement. That, that notion is actually an ancient one. That's not a new idea. Uh, it shows up, for instance, so let me reference the ancient traditions that I'm most familiar with around spirituality and wisdom. Uh, this shows up, for instance, in a rather strange Old Testament book uh, that has the title of Joel. Um, most of that book is about how everything is either going or is on the verge of going completely sideways. It's, it's basically doom-scrolling before the Internet. Like It's just un, this unleashing of... This is all going to go to hell in a handbasket. And as is the pattern of the belief framework for that people in time, there's this little thread of hope woven in that is like the, the pivot for the whole thing. And what it depends on is the people changing their ways. And so the, the story is really a giant lever uh, trying to get people to come around to a certain way of believing and behaving. Uh, the Old Testament uses the word repentance for that kind of human movement. It, the word literally quite means to change our direction. Right? It's, it's, not a, it's not actually a very complicated word linguistically. We've, just, we've made something of it that, uh, anyway. But that's what the word itself actually means. Now, the before anyone gets lost in this conversation and sort of traumatic memories, uh, I hope it's not already too late, of sort of fire and brimstone sermons of the past or you know, getting into the deep weeds of thinking that repentance means to return to somebody else's notion of right belief. Um, let me get to what I think is the interesting bit about this particular reference. So, after all the uproar, all the wild images of apocalypse that are either already there or still to come, and some of them are remarkably uh, detailed and quite fantastical, sort of of the, of the, the there's, there's characters in Joel that, that behave physically in the world like Spider-Man. They walk up to walls and walk up them. You know, it's like, it's, it's very trippy. 
But after all of that sort of happens, when the writer gets to the part where they talk about what a good life looks like, the alternative to all of that apocalypse, they say that the good life has a central feature. And this is how they articulate what the central feature of a not falling apart everywhere and blowing up everywhere life looks like. In that good life, so after all the apocalypse, or after you get it sorted and avert the apocalypse, after all of this, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Young men will see visions. What? It's daydreaming, right? In a good world, the people get to daydream. They need to daydream. That idea that daydreaming, that seeing a future that is different than what has happened in the past, what Hersey is talking about from her daydream, that is a hallmark of things being as they should be. And it is so powerful in the imagination of these people, the Hebrew people in particular in this case, that it shows up again textually almost 500 years later in sacred text, in that tradition, but with a twist. So listen to this. So this is, this is, from, uh, this is from the book of Acts. And it says this way. You'll recognize the shape of it. <laughs> Afterward, I will pour out my spirit on, and here's a, here's a twist, on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men see visions. And then this sentence, even on male and female slaves in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Now, binary understanding of gender, not you know, taken into account. Um, this, this movement toward a more just world, one that if, if, we can think of, if we can think of that movement as incremental progress at all, it certainly doesn't seem to happen fast, right? Like the, the movement from it's a mess to it's less of a mess to it's good, culture change in a word, slow boat, long big turn. But it shows up here, And it shows up in this almost incredulous language of even on male and female slaves. In other words, in a world where things are in better balance, the dreams that drive that whole better world won't just be those of the patriarchs. (laughs) And that's huge. They won't even just be those of the males. That's huge. They will come, these dreams of a better world, they will come from the dispossessed. They will come from the enslaved. They will come from those that are sidelined on the basis of social position or race or because they lost the war or those that were assigned a lesser value because of their gender. That's all bundled into the sentence, even on male and female slaves, which for Luke, the writer, is just this incredulity. It's just this like, that's, that, I, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to help everybody hear me say, everybody. In a better world, everybody gets to daydream. And everybody from those dreams has a voice of how things could be different than they have been. That's how this happens. By daydreaming for everybody. Kind of a crazy thought, eh? Not by making a more efficient machine. There's nothing wrong with a more efficient machine. Unless we think it's the Messiah. (laughs) You know, it's going to save us. I don't mean anything necessarily religious by that. Just, you know be saved as a species. Anyway, I'm going to leave it there, but maybe if we do a little imagining of our own, a little bit of daydreaming, we could, we could picture a world in which everyone not only daydreams, but having, in Hersey's phrase, felt in their body and mind an alternative to what had been done, 
dreams a dream, has a vision, raises a voice, enacts a way that we could do better. It starts with a dream, right? It starts with a daydream. All right, peace. All right, I need to do a technical thing. I don't need to. I wish to. This is a preference, to be clear. But it's odd, so I'm prefacing it. I'm going to say a, I'm going to say a sentence, and it's entirely for my benefit when I'm editing later. Okay? Humor me. Welcome to the talkie bit. There. Otherwise, I have to recreate that sentence later in a different sonic space, and it sounds so bizarre in the edit that I just hate it. I don't even, I don't even like it, but it's like a little piece of punctuation. All right. I mean, any, any, uh, we've got a little bit of time here, as we sometimes do on Alt Sundays. Tell me, tell me what